Well, good morning and welcome to Central Assembly this morning. It is so good to have each and every one of you this morning. You could have gone anywhere today, but you chose to join us here, and we are so happy to see each and every one of your smiling faces this morning. If you're a guest with us, we want to say welcome to you especially. Uh, it is so important, yet so encouraging to us that you would choose to join us this morning. We would love to get to know you just a little bit better. If you could fill out that Connect card in the seat back in front of you, you could either take it to our Connect Center at, uh, in the lobby after church, or you could drop that in an offering bucket. We would love to be able to reach out to you, to greet you, to get to know you a little bit better, as well as to invite you to some future events that we have just for you. So if you could just go ahead and, and fill that Connect card out and give us the opportunity uh, to just reach out and say hello to you, get to know you a little bit better. Um, with that being said, I want to be able to just give a couple of real quick announcements this morning. First of all, um, we are so excited about the ministry that's been happening here at the church, um, whether it's been uh, some praise reports in our youth ministry, as well as uh, some awesome things that are going to come up in our kids' ministry, uh, but uh, as well as Celebrate Recovery going on Friday nights has been um, just an incredible ministry, not only to the people of our church, but to our community. Uh, also want to just let you know, remind you that each and every Sunday morning we have a committed group of people who want to help you grow in your faith and take your next step. And they're teaching some Sunday school classes here from, at 9 a.m. And we have some Sunday school rooms here along the back hallway. We would love to have you come and be a part of that. So we're so grateful for each and every one of our incredible leaders here at the church. I can't even begin to brag enough about the selfless people that help us continue to move the gospel forward here in this church. I could talk about volunteer leader after volunteer leader, and I could take the rest of today as well as all of next week and tell you about each and every fantastic leader that is helping us make sure that the ministry is happening here at the church. But I will just, in general, ask each and every one of you, would you go ahead and just join me in thanking our leaders, our volunteer leaders, by giving them a hand today. we got several of them who've stepped up and filled some big shoes and played a big part of building God's kingdom here in Superior and the surrounding areas. We're going to continue to move uh, forward in our Nehemiah series. We started the book of Nehemiah a few weeks ago. Um, and one of the things that I love about the book of Nehemiah is, is we get this big picture look at God changing a nation, God rebuilding a region, and how we can get a, a, a cool picture of, of, of what it looks like not only to just rebuild a city, you know, which building gives us a, a really good foundation to teach on, but also how that city eventually ends, to, uh, ends up in a state of revival. And I believe that God's Spirit wants to pour out in our community more than we want him to pour out in our community. I think it's getting us to that place of individual revival. Come on, it takes each of us individually getting to that place of revival before God can pour out in a city because he has, it has to get through us first. It has to get to us before it can get through us. And if it's going to pour out from us, it has to be here. It has to be deep. And we have to get to a place where what we're giving to the world around us spiritually isn't an um, exchange where our cup 
If I had a, 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 a cup up here in my hand where our cup is being filled up and then poured out each and every week and we just need another fill up. It's not like our gas tank where we fill it up and then it gets used and we have to fill it up again. But I believe it has to come to a place where each and every one of us are pouring out in the world around us based on the overflow coming over the top of our cup and not what we're pouring out each and every week. That's what revival looks like. It looks like an overflow from our hearts and not a pouring out of our hearts because otherwise we will always inevitably end up on empty. And at some point in time, in our emptiness, we're going to end up failing or struggling or lost. We have to get to a place where we're seeking God in a way that it is overflowing and bubbling from within us in a way that we can't even contain it or else we'll never see it happen in the world around us. Revival is not an outpouring in the city. Revival is an outpouring in our hearts, us collectively. And I believe that this gives us a great teaching point for us to be able to consider what does it look like for the Spirit of God to pour out in the world around us, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our region, to a place where we see great impact and great change. And we see the lost saved. And we see the miraculous manifestations of God's Holy Spirit. But it's got to start from the people of God being hungry enough to seek him first. Because like I've said multiple times in this series, those who truly love God, they love his word enough to know it. And they love his kingdom enough to do their part in building it. Come on, we want to be a people of God. I want us to be a people of God. And I can, I, I can do everything I can do, but until it gets into your hearts, until it gets into your souls, until it gets into your minds, I can want it for you, but you have to want it for yourselves. So those who truly love God, love, him enough, love his word enough to know it, and they love his kingdom enough to do their part in building it. The next portion of Scripture that we're going to get into, we're going to get into Nehemiah 2, uh, verse 9, all the way through chapter 3. Don't worry. The Packers don't start till 3.30. <laughs> Just play. My Vikings are probably already losing. <laughs> They're in London, so... Anybody got a score update for me? Just kidding. Keep it to yourselves. I don't want to know. I don't want to be depressed for the rest of this service. <laughs> I'll find out later. <laughs> but we're going to get through chapter 3 today because we have a lot to get through in the coming weeks. And I want to make sure that we're uh, hitting the major topics within Nehemiah. But a big part of the second half of chapter 2 is inspecting the walls. Inspecting uh, getting a lay of the land, and Nehemiah understanding what's going on in Jerusalem. And I want to point something out here about inspections, because I think inspections are vital in life, right? When you want to eat some really good food, are you willing to still go to a kitchen that doesn't pass inspection? Okay, some of us might be willing to do so. There was a, there was a few head shakes, yes, uh, in the room. Um, 
but do you really want to buy a house that doesn't pass inspection? There's a few people in the room who are probably good enough at fixing things that they go, hey, I see a good deal there. You know, I could, I could buy that house even though it doesn't pass inspection. How about, who in the room, though, is going to fly in a plane that doesn't pass inspection? Oh, okay, we found everybody's breaking point. Everybody, everybody. It's funny because, um, you know, I was, I was uh, in the Twin Cities when the, 35, when the I-35 bridge collapsed. I was, I was a couple miles away. Um, I was still living downtown Minneapolis. Um, I had just graduated high, uh, college, but I was still living in the Twin Cities area in downtown Minneapolis. And, and I wasn't, like, I was a couple miles away. We were actually heading out of town, but I still remember the chaos of that bridge falling. And, and it's one of those things, though, because I was so close to it, because it, it was so real, because I drove across that bridge every day, most of the times, three to four times a day, that it was just, it was, it was, it was like more present in my life than probably like even now as we are sympathizing and empathizing for people in, in Fort Myers, Florida, who are still without so many things that they need to survive life, where that it, to them, you know, is, is extremely real because of where they live. It was extremely real because of where I lived at the time. And I still remember in, in, in my life at that point in time, like I have this weird like thing with bridges now because it was so real to me that it kind of gives me PTSD every time I see a bridge that I feel like um, shouldn't be driven on. You know, and, and, and unfortunately, coming from the Twin City, or from, uh, sh from Chicago to here, right, in the Chicagoland area, there's a lot of bridges that should not be driven on. Like, I'm going to be honest, like, there are some things going on that, that was, there was a bridge right by our house that I was, like, I, I literally, I was praying in tongues every time I crossed the bridge, like we're going across Joliet, across the river in, in, in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. And I kid you not, like I would look for any reason I could to drive a different way around. But so often it meant I was going to have to drive an extra couple of hours or an extra hour just and get stuck in traffic. And sometimes I was willing to because the bridge scared me so much after having been near the bridge that collapsed in Minneapolis. And, and so I remember driving across this bridge in, in the, the suburbs of Chicago, and you would see like bolts where they were like, they were looking like they were like a good three inches like out of the bridge, you know, like, and I'm going, oh gosh, what is going on? Lord, help me, please, 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 please just give me the time. And then if it was like super crowded and there was a lot of equipment on the bridge and trucks on the bridge, like I'm definitely like to the place where I, my car's unlocked, my seatbelt's off, I'm ready to jump out and run. And I just remember being so, like, nervous going across this bridge all the time. And part of that was because of previous experience. The other part of that is because I did the research, and I found out that it was one of the most dangerous bridges in America. Exactly. Why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> I think it was number eight on the list. So, I mean, it wasn't the worst. <laughs> but, but inspections are vital. Like, the funny thing is, is this, this bridge doesn't pass inspection. Yet, thousands of people still drive across it daily. And it blows my mind. I was one of them for a little while out of necessity, but I wasn't comfortable with it. In fact, I avoided it whenever I could. If they weren't 
replacing a couple other bridges at the same time that were near it. I definitely would have taken those instead. But apparently they were worse. But inspections are vital to growth as they reveal areas in our life in which we need to give attention and improvement. Nehemiah 2, verses 9, and I'm going to read just through the second verse of chapter 3, just to save us some time, because then chapter 3 is a little redundant. A lot of it is going to be, you know, kind of copy-paste, change some names, okay? Chapter 2, verse 9 says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the letters from the king. Now the king had sent with me some officers of the army and horsemen. But Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, his servant heard this, and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. You know what's funny about that, and we're going to get into Sanballat and um, Tobiah, is that Sanballat was actually an Israelite. So he was somebody who should have had a like-minded goal and yet here he is in opposition of the will of God, of the mandate of God, of the call of God. I want to encourage somebody in here today just to let you know that there are some people who may have something in common with you. They may even appear on the surface to be with you, but they're not for you. There's a difference. There's a difference. Make sure you're surrounding yourself when you're going to accomplish the will of God with like-minded people who are not just with you, but for you. Because when tough time comes, you're going to need people around you who are for you and not just with you. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one in which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the, the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. But then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is, this, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will rise up and build. But you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. 
In the next chapter, you have the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechur, the son of Emer, built. Scriptures in chapter 3 go on to list who was involved in repairing and consecrating the city gates at different portions of the wall and gates in between, in the wall in between the different gates. In chapter 3, it goes through those lists and how they went about their work and who consecrated it. And I think that it's important for us to realize that inspection assumes responsibility. It was one thing for Nehemiah to hear about what had happened in Jerusalem. It was another thing, once he inspected it for himself, to have to be able to do something about it. You see, I think inspections are something in our life that we intentionally avoid, even if we try to act like it's subconscious. Because oftentimes in our lives, I think we don't want to know the truth. It is so much easier to live in ignorance than it is to understand the truth of how things really are because then as people of faith, it brings up, it wells up this responsibility within us and then we have to do something about it. Then Holy Spirit conviction kicks in. Then character kicks in. And sometimes as people of character, and people who are led by the Holy Spirit, it's just easier to not know. I can tell you a couple of different stories from my time being a youth pastor where I would try to talk with a parent about a student who was doing things that they didn't belong doing. And I would say, hey, this is going on in their life, and they're lying to you. And oftentimes the parent would give me some type of a sidestep response like, now they're a good kid and they would just go ahead and, 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 and overlook it because they didn't want to know. They wanted to be able to just believe that the child was good and they were going to be fine. And they would usually hide behind some type of a statement like, they're a good kid. No, nobody's not saying they're a good kid. They're a loved kid. They're a kid with potential with a bright future, but somebody's got to be intentional enough and love them enough to help them get there. You know what's funny is, is, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but about the time I was 30, 31, 32, sometimes I'm slow in life. It takes me a little longer to understand things. But about the time I was, you know, a little after 30, I realized that my parents didn't keep me from doing things because they didn't like me. That discipline was actually one of the greatest forms of love that my parents ever showed to me. Because I remember going back to visit my parents one weekend and consequently end up kind of talking to some old friends, people that I went to high school with. And when I realized that a lot of them were still living their lives, getting drunk at the same bar that had been serving them at 17. 
that my parents not allowing me to go do things was actually an act of love that kept me from having the same problems for the next 15 years of my life, week in and week out. I was no longer controlled by the fleshly desires, a lot because of the discipline of my parents. They loved me enough to give me proper direction in life. And they were willing enough to be involved in helping me get there. And so often in our lives, we don't inspect things because we don't want to know the truth. Because then the truth causes us to assume responsibility. Nehemiah had to inspect the gates. He had to inspect the walls. He had to survey the damage because he was called to do something about it. It's so much easier for us to ignore our calling. It's so much easier for us to ignore our mandate from heaven. Oh, and by the way, that's not just for the pastors. That's not just for the certain leaders in the church. As people of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we are all called to go and make disciples. But so often, we lack inspection intentionally. We don't really want to have, ask somebody a tough question. Then I have to do something about it. And then awkwardness sets in. Nobody wants to deal with awkward. Trust me. All the parents in the room can say amen to that. Every conversation, I swear, in parenting leads to some type of awkwardness. <laughs> and oftentimes, we intentionally don't ask tough questions because we don't want to have to take responsibility. Therefore, we lack inspection in our lives. And unfortunately, we then operate on assumptions. And when we operate in big picture areas of our lives under nothing but assumptions, it will most assuredly lead to some type of catastrophic destruction. And far too often in our households especially, even in our individual lives, we operate on assumptions sometimes it's just easier to not have to deal with the hard truth. And then even in our own personal lives, we operate under the assumption that our intentions are right. But most of the time, they're just convenient. And I have to learn to ask myself the tough questions. And I have to understand how important inspection is in my life. The next thing that we have to do is we have to understand the power of a testimony. In verse 18, it says, and I, told them the, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Remember, we talked about that last week. The good hand of God is upon us. Well, the good hand of God is upon us, each and every one of us. But because the good hand of God is upon us, we can walk in his favor, but we have to trust in him and not in our own understanding, and not in our own resources, and not in our own abilities. 
And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Come on. This is one of those incredible testimonies where the power of Nehemiah's testimony and the proof, right? The proof of God's provision. Nehemiah can not only tell about his conversation with the king in which God granted him favor, not only to to depart his presence and his job and his responsibility, but also sent him with all of the authority and resources he needed to accomplish this task. Oh, and when Sanballat comes and goes and, and stands up against him and accuses him of rebellion, don't forget he had the papers. It's a testimony to God, but also everybody gets to see God's provision. So often in our lives, we fail to realize the power of a testimony. But Nehemiah knew he needed to inspire a group of people because God had called him to restore a city. But he also knew that he couldn't do it alone. Nehemiah's call was actually not to physically build the city himself. It was to actually lead a group of people to a place of revival and have them rebuild the city. And sometimes, often in our lives, we fail to realize the importance of a testimony. God has given each and every one of us Moments in our life that are worth talking about. And oftentimes we find ourselves in some way, shape, or form either ignoring the hand of God in our lives, ignoring his sovereignty, ignoring his provision, or claiming it ourselves as if it was because of how good we are instead of how good God is. And I've gotten to the place in my life where I've just realized that God's good hand is upon me so often. And God has done things that are unexplainable in my life. And I have to continue to give him the praise and the glory. And you know what's awesome about that? The more I give him credit for the good things in my life, the more good things happen in my life. Listen, my wife and I are walking in favor that we did not deserve. Every day of my life, as she stays married to me. <laughs> She's also very devout, <laughs> scripturally. <laughs> but we get to walk in unprecedented favor each and every day. But I believe that that's because we give God credit because we're not good enough to take it. And so often in our lives, we can point to his hand that has guided us, his goodness that has been upon us, and we can back it up with the proof of the way we've lived our lives. That's why you'll hear us talk about what he's brought us through. Because we need you to know that he has worked miracles in our lives, that he has moved mountains in our lives. And if he's done it for us, he'll do it for you because guess what? He doesn't love me more than he loves you. He wants it for you. He loves you. He cares for you. And he has more in store for you. And sometimes 
We just have to understand it's not because of us. It's because he loves us. That's why I'm going to take a moment like this morning and encourage you to open your mouth and give God thanks. Let the goodness of God be professed and over, as an overflow from your life. My wife and I only have a place to live because of God's goodness. Talked with a few of you about our moving story. It's always crazy. Every time we've moved, it's been chaos. But at the end of the day, it's always ended up far better than we could have ever asked for or imagined. Even when it felt awful in the process. But it's because of God's goodness. Each and every day, we find that we have outkicked our coverage. And God has been good to us. The power of a testimony. Also, side note, sometimes by trying to take the credit ourselves means we have to assume the responsibility. Think about that. Number three, every great calling will have to be matched with great courage. I think we have this, this, this misconception, this misunderstanding in our lives that, that faith is a one-time act. We'll read through the stories of scriptures about these great faith people, and, and, and we act like David only had to kill one giant. We act like the Israelites only had to cross one sea. We act like it was just one moment and then everything was fine. And, and we fail to realize that every great act of faith, every great calling takes great courage. And even more than that, one courageous step has to lead to another. When you walk in what God has called you to, Every step you take is going to be met with more resistance. Faith is not a one-time thing. It is in every day, every step, every decision moment in our lives, and we have to understand that it doesn't stop. That's why I said being faithful. Faithfulness is overrated, at least by most of us in our lives. And we have to understand that every courageous step requires another one. The resistance only gets stronger. The funny thing is, is the easiest conversation that Nehemiah probably had to have was the first one with the king. And most of us would have ran away from that conversation. But then when you walk to a land that is completely and utterly destroyed... And the first people you're met with is resistance? Come on. We have to understand, oftentimes the first people that meet us in life are going to be resistance because the enemy understands in your life that if he can keep you from that step of faith, he wins. But the second you get into God's will, he loses. And if he can get you to limit that step so you don't take the next step, and then you don't take the next step, 
and then you don't take the next step, the earlier on in that process he can stop you, the easier. But make no mistake, each and every next step was still a courageous act in the life of Nehemiah. He had to make courageous choice after courageous choice. And he had to understand that every time he took a courageous step in the calling of God, he was going to be met with stronger opposition. And that's going to get even more clear and evident as we get through this. But make no mistake, we have to read the Bible in all of its context. Because it's easy for us to talk about David and Goliath. But we forget of all of the battles after that, between the time David was anointed as king of Israel and the time where David actually sat on the throne of a united kingdom. Decades of struggle. Decades of courageous acts. Decades of discernment where his enemy was literally put on a platter in a cave in front of him, and he had to choose the tough decision of not taking the throne for himself and allowing God to do it in his time. Those are tough decisions and courageous acts. It wasn't just one giant. The giant was just the beginning. And so often in our lives, we expect it to be easy after we've taken a step of faith. But one courageous step leads to another. We have to understand, as Winston Churchill once said, success is not final and failure is not fatal. Oftentimes we act like if we make one right decision, done enough. But we don't understand that all that leads to is another decision. But in the same way, every failure is not the end. It just leads to another place for us to make a decision to turn the ship around. Success is not final and failure is not fatal. It's funny because as you read about the history of Nehemiah and what's going on, and how he leads as a leader. A lot of his leadership style is actually mirrored in the life of Winston Churchill. I've recently watched a bunch of Winston Churchill documentaries and done some research on this, but I, there's a, a couple of things that I want to point out about Winston Churchill. First of all, his rise to power couldn't have been any more inconvenient. May 9th, 1940, Winston Churchill gets invited to be the new prime minister Of Great Britain. And at the time, the prime minister had literally just resigned out of nowhere because he saw inevitable or an imminent defeat ahead. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to go. He had put his trust in the wrong people. He'd put his support in the wrong people. He didn't give the enemy enough credit. And he had already put the entire country in a place where they probably were going to be conquered. So he goes ahead and he jumps ship before it fully sinks. And so they invite a guy named Winston Churchill because he was the only option. 
He was the only person who would be an acceptable leader amongst everybody that was disagreeing on who should lead the country at this point in time. He was the only option. How would you like getting that letter? Because it wasn't a phone call, nor a text message. You receive the letter and say, hey, I guess you're the guy by default. You're the only option. We aren't really excited about it. In fact, we're, all that was pointed out about him at that point in time were his failures and his faults. On top of it, you're inheriting a World War type of mess. I think most of us understand that, right? He's in the middle of a world war. At this point in time, multiple countries have already surrendered. And the deck is completely stacked against him. But here's the thing. Like Nehemiah, Winston Churchill understood that when nobody else would stand, when nobody else would lead a nation, when nobody else would fight for the good of his people, somebody had to. Somebody had to. And I think he also understood everybody else has failed. So why not just go ahead and, and push forward and give it my all? In Nehemiah's case, it was, I, hey, it's easy for me to trust the will of God. I mean, it's not like the country isn't already burning. It's not like the country isn't already destroyed. It's not like the city's not already in ruins. But one of the things that I want to point out about Churchill is that he was known for intentionally visiting places where people were tired, where people were worn down, where it seemed like the battle was already lost, and people needed to be inspired and encouraged and lifted up. He was always present at ground zero. He was always present at the places where the need was the greatest. In the same way, Nehemiah went to the gates. Every single gate to the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed at this point in time. He went to the gates. He went to the places where people needed the most encouragement, where people had the least, where hope was lost. And he was available at ground zero. He was willing to do the work and he was willing to be a part. Doesn't it always feel in your life like war gets waged at the most inconvenient times? Like, think about World War II and inheriting it. Not like being a part of leading your country into it, because Chamberlain had already done that in England. But inheriting it. Where do you go from there? You don't have the history you don't have the relationships. You haven't had the communication. How inconvenient. And oftentimes in our lives, I think we, we get to this place where we think that the enemy attacks us at the most inconvenient time, and we wonder why. You know, God, I've, I've really been struggling with this. I'm really having this relationship issue in my marriage over here. I just lost my job. 
the water pump just broke on my car. And I don't know how I'm going to fix it. And then the next thing happens. And you're like, great. When it rains, it pours. But just like in World War II, the most inconvenient time to take leadership, there's a war in each and every one of our lives. There's a spiritual war going on around us. And we have to understand that the enemy sees something in you, therefore he's going to attack you when you're weak. It's a wartime strategy. Why wouldn't you attack your enemy at their weakest point? Therefore, in our lives, we have to understand. It requires inspection. Because if those gates aren't repaired, the city is always subject to siege. Of course it's going to be inconvenient. Of course the enemy is going to attack when it's tough. In nature, when an animal sees another one wounded, they take advantage. Low-hanging fruit. One of the things that I found that helps me with perspective in this in my everyday life is that destinations are great, right? We all have goals. We all want to see the big picture. We all want to be somewhere in five years. We all want to be somewhere in 10 years. Destinations are great. But those who embrace the journey, they're the ones who arrive. One of the biggest struggles that I have to go through every day as somebody who values achievement probably disproportionately, right? I can probably be that honest in this room, that transparent, I'm highly competitive, is that I have to learn each and every day to embrace the journey and not just fixate on the destination. Because it's actually my fixation on the destination that will keep me from getting to the journey because it's going to deteriorate the daily needs that I have and the relationships around me. But those that embrace the journey find people to go along with them to help them raise up and eventually get to the destination and even further because they've embraced the journey. Last point I want to make is, is that gates are a major factor in our consecration. Throughout chapter 3, you're going to read about different gates and different points at the city in which they've rebuilt them. They've replaced hardware. They've replaced timber. They've built them back up to a place where they're ready and they're strong. And the first thing they do is they consecrate them. And you might be asking, what does that mean? That means that they declare them sacred and they offer them back to God. And, and, and this would be a really easy moment for us to overlook just because it becomes a list. And sometimes we, we, we go into cruise control when we read our Bible and we, we see a list and we just go, okay, cool, I'm going to turn the page and get back to the important stuff. But I don't want us to miss the fact that they took a moment to consecrate each and every gate to the city. One of the things that we have to realize is that gates are important in our lives. 
in your spirit. We each have gates to our spirit. We have gates to our heart. We have gates to our soul. That which we take in through our eyes, through our ears, even through our mouths, those are gates to our souls. Those are gates to our hearts. And just as the Israelites are trying to rebuild a city, what's at the central point of that city? A temple that also needs to be rebuilt. And the Israelites understand at this point in time, they're rebuilding the sacred city that God has given them. Because the name of God is at stake. The name of their God is at stake. And that is represented by their temple. Because that's how their world operated. And yet each and every day in our lives, we continue to fail to realize that the temple of God is not this building, but it's our hearts. And the gates to our hearts, through our eyes, through our ears, and through our mouths, continue to get absolutely ransacked by the enemy as we allow different things into our lives that don't belong there each and every day. The sacred nature of our God and the sanctity of it is constantly at war. And the gates of our hearts, God's temple, are regularly under siege. And we fail time and time again to rebuild them and to consecrate them, to declare them sacred, to put accountability, to reinforce them, to give ourselves the chance to continue to be a conduit of the Holy Spirit because we allow his temple to lay in ruins in our hearts because we can't maintain the gates to our souls. Oftentimes we fail to properly inspect the condition of our hearts. I'm going to ask Matt to go ahead and come help me close. But for far too often, we take for granted the condition of our heart. And we, we sit on a couple of Bible statements and we know that we're saved, so therefore we fail to continue to grow to bear witness, to have a testimony, mostly because the temple of the Holy Spirit lies in ruins within us. This building right here could go away, and it doesn't change the temple of God in any way, shape, or form. Though we appreciate this room, though we appreciate this building, though we love what God has given us to steward, it has nothing to do with God's temple. Because God's temple is here. It's in you. We take it with us. And we fail day in and day out to maintain it. I'm reminded of how Nehemiah's journey started. He understood if he didn't start by consecrating his own heart. He could never affect a city 
a region, a nation. And he understood that he could maybe have favor in one conversation with a king. But eventually, his sustaining force was going to come down to the condition and character of his own heart. And I think sometimes we negate to realize that because we take for granted the grace of Jesus. And we always understand that no matter how many steps away from him we take, he's only one step back. And some of us have just gotten to the place where we just rely on the saving grace of Jesus, but we fail to realize the purpose and the calling that God has given us. We fail to realize that he has so much more in store for us, that he has something greater in store for us, and we settle for the bare minimum. And we want to go ahead and allow the temple of God to continue to be unimpactful in the community around us. I think it's important for us to understand that we are carriers of his presence. We are carriers of his presence in each in every life we come into contact with. Are they experiencing the Holy Spirit? Not by what you profess, but by the mere fact that they've come in contact with you. I want to share this last portion of Scripture real quick. Because I believe that this is true for us. As carriers of the Holy Spirit, as He resides within us, as he impacts the world around us. And I believe that if we consecrate the temple, Exodus chapter 30, verse 29, says this, and this is my prayer this morning, because I believe that God wants to change a community. I believe that God wants to invade our neighborhoods. I believe that God wants to revive a city a region, a state, two states, a country. But it starts with his people, his temple, consecrating themselves. Because I believe if we do so, this will be the manifestation of his presence in our lives. 29 of Exodus chapter 30 says, You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy, goes on to say, whatever touches them will become holy. Well, can we be people that have consecrated our hearts, that have become so obsessed with growing closer to God and reliant upon the Holy Spirit that like the Apostle Paul, when he would throw away a handkerchief, that people would take it to the sick and they would get saved. Because whatever touched them became holy. Because we are God's temple. We are God's resting place. And people who come in contact with us, come in contact with God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And we can no longer allow our temples to lie in ruins. Not if we're going to accomplish the great work that he's put in front of us.